Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 1st, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. Those who come to the Lord with idolatry in their hearts should not expect that he is bound to give them an answer, much less give them a favorable one. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaks words of judgment against the elders of his people in order to call them to repentance. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Good to be back with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, let's talk a little bit of context. We're in Ezekiel 14. What should we know about the prophet and his ministry thus far as we prepare to look at this chapter today? Well, he's been announcing a whole lot of judgment that's going to come upon the people of of uh, Judah and uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and he's not backing off from this. A whole lot of action parables that he's given and uh, also condemning the false prophets who are saying that this isn't going to happen. That's right. Lots of judgment in Ezekiel. That's a perfect summary. So we've, we've had bits of gospel here and there, and, and perhaps some today we'll, we'll be able to see at least glimmers of hope. Uh, thinking about the chapter today, how would you break it down in terms of a, a structure? What are we going to encounter in this chapter? Yeah, so in this chapter, you're going to get kind of two parts. So two words from God, uh, and they have uh, an internal connection with each other. So the first part will be the first 11 verses we're going to go through. And it's going to announce to the elders who've come to the prophet to inquire of God uh, that the Lord will not allow them as idolaters to inquire of him, uh, but will answer uh, all who do not turn from idolatry with these severe judgments that we've been hearing about here in Ezekiel. Uh, and even will destroy the prophets who venture to give an answer to such inquirers. So those who, who would want to give the you know what the itching ears want to hear he's he's going to say no i'm going to destroy those false prophets for doing that and then the second word is kind of connected to that and it denounces this false hope that god will avert the judgment and spare jerusalem because of some righteousness of, of godly men that are in in uh jerusalem and in judah so there is uh definitely a connection between everything that we're going to go through, but kind of two words. Uh, the first, uh, announcing this this judgment uh, upon the idolaters, and the second, God's not going to avert any judgment just because there are righteous people within Judah. So let's take up the first part of the text. This is Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 11. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols 
that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword, and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment, the punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. That's the first section of the text. That's Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 11. So, Pastor Preuss, we've seen this scene play out before, that the elders of Israel come to Ezekiel, and they're there to listen. This time, the Lord, it's, it's as if the Lord knows, he, he does know what's going on, why they're there, and he gives Ezekiel a word to speak to them. Take us into the, the opening part of this scene. Yeah, so these elders uh, who are coming to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, are uh, fellow exiles and they come and sit before him really that's just saying they've got a question for him and they want him to answer it and so uh it says something about the jewish captives in babylon they have some freedom right to come uh, and go and do certain things so it's just worth mentioning that's what's happening here and they wanted to know probably what would happen to jerusalem and what would happen to them and and babylon as exiles they're inquiring of this prophet for a specific reason and this is the topic uh, that that really is the issue. Um, but the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel that these elders have set up idols in their hearts. And it's really a, a wonderful way of, of the Lord cutting to the very heart of the issue is that these idols are in their hearts, uh, even though there are physical idols as well. And this is something, you know, this idolatry of the heart that we as Lutherans understand very well since uh, our catechism, uh, Luther taught that whatever you fear, love and trust in the most is your God. And so, you know, it's there's an old pithy way of saying it. I think that the, the idol is in your heart before it's on your hearth. And, and that's really the truth of it. So uh, their idols, we know, are stumbling blocks of iniquity, as the Lord says to Ezekiel to tell them, uh, because they cause not only, uh, you know, really themselves to fall, but the people to fall and the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to fall as well. So this is a, a, certainly a major stumbling block uh, that they have these idols in their hearts uh, as well as, as uh, worshiping them outwardly. Um, and, and then since these elders were worshiping false gods, this means that they did not sincerely want to know the word of the Lord from Ezekiel uh, or, or they're trying to hedge their bets, which again is not, is not a sincere faith in the Lord and trusting in him. And so the Lord would not answer their insincere questions like they wanted. And so that's kind of what's going on there in those first four verses. Well, so this is, I mean, it's an interesting thing that happens because, you know, the Lord asks Ezekiel what I, I would take as somewhat of a rhetorical question, you know, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? You know, Ezekiel, should I, should I let them ask me a question? 
And I think the answer is no, but of course the Lord has no, they should not expect that he would answer them when they've got these idols in their hearts, when, as you said, they're, they're maybe hedging their bets. You know, we, we've consulted our idols already, but let's go ahead and, and see if the Lord has something else for us that maybe we'll like a little bit better or something like that. And yet, so on the one hand, the, the answer to that question is no, you know, he shouldn't let himself be consulted. And yet it seems he does. He, he does give them an answer, although, and I like the way you phrased it, it's not the answer that they're probably looking for. So what, what does the Lord have to say to these idolaters? Well, he, he answers their, the idolatrous elders with, with a call to repentance. So, uh, yeah, oftentimes, you know, you've probably heard this before, too, that people will have a question for you, but oftentimes there's something behind their question, right? Uh, you know, what's, what's the question behind the question? That's kind of what the Lord's doing here is that he's saying, listen, I know why you're asking this. It's not because you're faithful. It's because you're unfaithful and you don't want to listen to what the prophet has been saying up until this point. Uh, and you don't want to inquire of him sincerely. So instead of answering the questions of the elders, the Lord answers in keeping with their idolatry. Uh, really, literally, it says, according to the measure of the multitude of their idols. So as bad as it is with the amount of idols that they have, he's going to answer in keeping with that kind of idolatry. And so this is this is going to be quite the answer. He tells them to repent. And when he tells them to repent, he has this double, you don't really get it in the English as much, but repent and turn away from, well, to turn away from is to repent. And so he's kind of doubly telling them to repent, turn from their idols, renounce all their detestable practices. Uh, and, you know, he does this and there is, you know, we talked about a little glimmer of, of hope in the midst of things. Um, certainly there's no hope for Jerusalem, as we'll talk about as far as their destruction goes. Uh, but this uh, he, he he does this, that all of these things that he may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. He wants to bring their hearts away from their idols. And so this once again teaches us a very important point that we know well today in the Lutheran church. And we should continue to make sure that we understand this clearly. The purpose of God's law, the primary purpose, obviously it also teaches us and curbs us. But it is to drive us to repentance and then back to faith in the Lord and his gospel promises. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it also tells us that uh, unless we come to the Lord in repentance, you know, this text is telling us that we too can expect the same response from the Lord in answer to our prayers. The Lord does not listen to the wicked. He listens only to the righteous. That is those who are righteous by faith and then confess that faith uh, in their lives. The interaction that Ezekiel has here with these elders, and then, of course, you know, guided by the word that the Lord speaks to him, reminds me, to a degree, of some of the interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders in the Gospels, in that they will often come to him with a question. You know, they'll come and inquire of, of Jesus, and the Gospel writers tell us that they come, say, to test Jesus or to try to trap him in his words, thinking that he won't know, and of course he does. And, and in a you know in a very similar way to what happens here, I think in Ezekiel, the Lord doesn't maybe answer the question that they pose to him, but he reframes it with what's really going on, and he ends up calling them to repentance. And I the the thing I I love about it, and I think fits well with what Ezekiel gives us here, is that you know on the one hand you'd kind of like Jesus just to to tell them off and say like you guys you don't you don't mean that you don't really want to know you're just trying to trap me get away from me. But he doesn't do that. Much like the Lord here doesn't just blast them as idolaters and say, get away from me. Rather, he exposes what's really going on in their heart. 
in order to call them back to himself. And the, the fact that the Lord does that here in Ezekiel 14, and I think you see Jesus doing that in the way he engages with his opponents in the Gospels, is a sign of his grace. He doesn't, he's not silent toward them, but he actually does speak that word of law to them in hopes of, of drawing them closer to himself, you know, bringing them to repentance and, and to faith. It's, it's just the fact that he's talking to them, I guess is what I'm saying. That's a sign of grace in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's so much easier just to be silent and not say anything. Um, you know, it's it, we we know that very well when it comes to speaking the word of law. We can kind of whisper it to ourselves or talk amongst other people, but to actually speak to those who are doing wrong and to do it in such a way that you want to bring them around to the grace of of our Lord. Um, you know, th- that's a rare thing, but it's something that we should we should seek to to emulate because as you said there, you know, I mean there's a reason that the Lord is acting one way here in the same way in the New Testament, because he's the same Lord. This is Jesus uh, pre-incarnate, the Lord, the Son of God, who is with the Father and the Holy Spirit, speaking here to, to the, uh, the prophet Ezekiel. And so he's, he's acting the same way in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, in that he really does want to use his law, his, his threats his, uh, for judgment, uh, in order to show us uh, that he is a God who is is full of justice, but a God who ultimately is is also then full of love. He he wants to bring them around so that their hearts will lay hold, or that he may lay hold of their hearts uh, in the house of Israel. Right, because they have estranged themselves from from him in their idolatry. He wants to get rid of those idols. I mean, I recall the vision that Ezekiel had of the the temple in Jerusalem back in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and how there, you know, there's idolatry happening in the temple in Jerusalem. There's idolatry in the hearts of the people who are in Babylon, and that has estranged, to use the language of verse 5, estranged the people from the Lord. He wants to draw them back to get to that. I mean, we'll, we'll get there, not, but to get to that conclusion where it's coming, you know, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. That's what he's driving at. And so he's going to use his law in order to do that. He's not going to let his people stay in their idolatry. And, and as we often see in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet repeats himself. He intensifies that message again. How do we see that happen in, in verses six through eight? Yeah, so he expands his threat in verses 7 and 8. The Israelites are the resident aliens in Israel who are idolatrous. Uh, So those, we hear about this in Leviticus, that if you're a resident uh, uh, alien in in Israel, a foreigner, then you uh, also have to not bring in your false gods. Uh, And they they come to the Lord's prophet, uh, and they should not expect the gospel either if they've got idolatrous hearts. So it's not just the, the elders, but all the people of Israel, anyone who would come to the prophet expecting something other than what he has been proclaiming. Uh, they're not going to get it. Instead, they should expect the Lord's face to be against them. And that's a, a way of speaking in the Old Testament here in Ezekiel um, that he's determined. He is not going back on this. You, you're not going to be able to flatter the Lord and, and with, with your idolatrous heart. He can see into it. He's not like man. He, he looks right into our hearts. And so they're not going to be able to uh, do it either. Um, so it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an elder or, or just a, a regular uh, Israelite, uh, the Lord is not going to uh, change his ways on this judgment. Uh, he is a just God. And uh, the Lord says that he's going to make an example out of them. And it's a quite strong language that he intensifies then. 
Uh, he's going to make them a proverb, a byword. So this is going to be just this outstanding example of what happens to the idolatrous. When you think of what happens to the idolatrous, when the Lord actually calls them out, you're going to think of Israel. Uh, you're going to think of what happened to them uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed and, and exiles were brought out and, and so forth. So there, there's uh, here a very, uh, very strong word. He's going to cut them off from his covenantal people. And then we hear that that kind of final you know, and you shall know that I am the Lord, this repetitious uh, saying in Ezekiel. Yeah, we, we hear that over and over again. This is the Lord's purpose, is so that his people would know who he is. That that matter of being a byword or a proverb, I guess it, it would kind of be like when, when we hear, say, the name or the city names, Sodom and Gomorrah right now, certain judgment automatically comes to mind. That, or right. when we hear the name, say, Judas Iscariot, we automatically think of betrayer. It's that sort of, oh, what's the going down in infamy? I guess is is kind of what's being described there. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same thing with you know words like Hitler or something like that. I mean, you're going to automatically think of something terrible when you when you think of them, as you said with the other examples from Scripture. And so, yeah, we we certainly have to uh, to see this as an a repetition of the threat, but also an expanding of the threat. Uh, that not only is he going to bring uh, great uh, harm upon them and destruction upon them, but he is going to make them into this, you know, you say the word uh, about the Israelites in, in, in Babylon, you're automatically going to think of what happened. Hmm. And, and it's something that we today, if you know your Old Testament, uh, we should all know. You hear about the Babylonian captivity and you need to think about the judgment that God put upon the people of of Israel for the purposes of knowing that He is the Lord, and that's where that purpose statement comes in there as well. Now, verses mm-hmm. w- verses one through eight deal with the matter of the elders themselves and, and anyone who would come with an idolatrous heart seeking an answer for the Lord from the Lord. This is how the Lord is going to respond. He's going to deal with that idolatry, and and should the person not repent, that's where the threat comes into play. The rest of this section, verses nine through eleven, deals with if a prophet then were to receive one of these people and actually speak a word, and I, I guess a word of hope to these people instead of the word of judgment, that's where, where these verses come from. And there's some strange and surprising language, and I'll just put it out there for you, Pastor Preuss, and you can, you can deal with the text as a whole as you want. But the, the strange part, I think, is where this prophet is said to have been deceived by the Lord that the Lord would deceive a prophet such that he would give a false answer, that probably sounds strange to us. So help us to to figure out what's going on in verses 9 through 11. Sure, yeah, it, it is strange. It, it's not the normal way of, of, of things as far as the way we see it. We see the Lord using true prophets and the false prophets uh, being the devil's uh, way of speaking to people uh, and people speaking out of their own sinful hearts. So uh, what we need to see is that the Lord does use the evil. He uses the false prophets. We know that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so he'll even use evil prophets. And so what he's doing is he's using these these prophets as his instruments and he's arranging their deceptive words. We shouldn't just think about this God allowing things to happen. That's certainly true. He does allow evil things to happen for the good of his people. But God is in control. And we need to be reminded of that, that God's will is done. And he will use even evil prophets for his own purposes. We hear about this in different places. Uh, one place that is probably more familiar to most people is with the with Pharaoh. 
um, and with the plagues is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh was evil, but the Lord then started hardening his heart and using that evil vessel for his own purposes. Uh, and he did the same thing with the prophets of Ahab who prophesied that there would be great success for him. And obviously that didn't happen. Uh, and so the Lord does use these prophets, uh, these false prophets for his own purposes. Uh, the prophets are already evil. The people are already living in deception. So if the prophets and the people want to live in deception, then the Lord will use the prophets to bring about the consequences of suffering more speedily. He'll, he'll say, okay, fine, I'll use you if you're going to do this. And, and then the, the false prophet would bear the same guilt as the one inquiring of him since what he's doing is just reinforcing the people in their unbelief. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a very uh, strange thing for sure. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but it is, uh, it's not what we usually think of when we think of the Lord working through people. I think the example that you brought up with Pharaoh is very helpful because, you know, when we hear in the book of Exodus that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, that seems striking to us as well. But as, as you put it, you know, in the context of the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart against the Lord. And so then the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart further in order to, to further his own, the Lord's own purposes. And, and when you see that, I think what we're seeing here with the false prophets is a very similar thing. That And from listening to what you're saying, to actually, and this may even sound stranger, but I, I think this is true, that when we see the Lord using the false prophets and even not just allowing, but you, you know, using them in this deceptive way, but for his own purposes, there's a, a level of comfort to the Christian in that. Yeah. Because we know that not even the false prophet who's out there peddling his lies and, and trying to deceive people, not even that one is outside of the Lord's gracious will in Christ. And that, so does that, uh, hopefully that made sense, but is that, I'll let you yeah, build absolutely. on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was well put. I think that the, the comfort is for us that, you know, the God, and this is why we have to know God's, what we call his alien work or his strange work. And then his proper work. And so his strange work is is in the law, but it's also in, in things like this where he's going to bring about his own purposes. Why is the law there? The law is to drive you to Christ primarily. Why is he using these false false prophets? Ultimately, it is to, uh, you know, use this strict discipline against their selfishness uh, in order to purify his nation and lead it back to him. And we know this from the text. So when you see there in the final verse there of this section, verse 11, uh, he says, the Lord says that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. So, yeah, absolutely. He, he uses this for his own purposes. And what an amazing comfort that is that the evil people will set out to do evil against us, against the people of God. And then what will the Lord do? He'll say, I'm going to even take the evil that they're doing. In fact, I'm going to start to use this for my own purposes. And I'm going to bring speedily the goodness that I can bring for my people, even through evil. And it's a, that is a constant comfort for the Christian when you look at any evil in your life right now, that God will be able to use that even to bring about good for his people is, is an amazing miracle that's still happening today. Looking at this particular section, verses 9 through 11, particularly as one who is called to speak the word of God and to do so faithfully, thinking about that call of Ezekiel to be a watchman, to whatever he hears from the Lord— to speak it, nothing more, nothing less. 
in in these verses, it strikes me as there's there's also a, a warning inherent in there for the one who's called to be a watchman. I mean, there's always that temptation to water down the message a little bit or to change it a little bit, as we saw in the previous chapter, you know, and to say peace, peace, because the people are going to like that, to whitewash the wall, to use the image of the, the previous. And, and it strikes me that these verses then contain a, a warning for the watchman who would start down that path. Look where that path can lead. When, when you start to deceive yourself, Look where that that can lead. You're you're just going to deceive yourself. The Lord's not going to let you get away with it, and He is going to turn that and use it for His good purposes. And you're actually going to be left out. And I, I I hate to I hate to go there after you finish with that wonderful note of hope. But it does strike me that anyone who would speak the word of the Lord, then these words, there's a, a warning inherent in them as well. Yeah, but it's only fitting that you go back to that because this this is full <laughs> of judgment. I mean, let's get real here. And it's too it's so true. But I mean, what you just said is so true. Um, when we're speaking God's word, um, we, we're not speaking it as those who are in charge of that word. We are we are watchmen. We are simply uh, proclaiming what the Lord has given us to proclaim. But when we start proclaiming our own word and we become comfortable in it, we become pawns. Pawns of the devil, yes, because he's obviously bringing the evil about. But if we're not careful and we become secure in this sin, uh, we can become pawns of the Lord, too. Uh, even in speaking evil and uh, what a woe to the the preacher who does that. And so a preacher should always bring themselves back to the word of God and, and live in repentance themselves and pray for the spirit to, to continue to give them the, the courage to speak forth only what God speaks uh, so that they are not those who think that they are in charge of, of, of the message, but rather uh, those who, who actually are following what our Lord has given them to say. Yeah, God God grant that faithfulness to his preachers so that we too, as, as preachers, as those who speak and teach the word of God, we too would know that he is the Lord and, and be content and find joy in being his people and being the ones that he has set as watchmen to speak his word faithfully. We're going to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 14 with Pastor Stephen Preuss, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 1st. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 23 with Pastor Stephen Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 1 through 11, where the Lord speaks to these idolatrous elders and anyone who would come to him with an idolatrous heart, asking for something from the prophet, and the Lord has an answer of judgment, but for the purposes of calling his people back to himself. And now Ezekiel receives a second word from the Lord in this text, so we pick up in Ezekiel 14, verses 12 and following. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, 
when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood, to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more, when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you, and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Ezekiel 14, verses 12 to 23. Pastor Price, perhaps one way we can take this is just sort of as a whole, because it's, it's very repetitive. What is the, the basic message that the Lord is trying to get across with these four disastrous judgment that he lists in verses 12 through 20? Yeah, and what he's trying to do is show that even the righteous cannot stop uh, this judgment from falling on this sinful land. And really, he just kind of leaves it general, any land, but obviously speaking to to Judah and Jerusalem. So the Lord tells Ezekiel that if a country sins against him, even if, if Noah, Daniel, and Job, there are three righteous men that we're going to think about, even if they were in it, still they would not stop the famine, the beasts, the sword, and the plague from killing their people, their animals, and even uh, the three men's sons and daughters, right? So, or all of their, their, their sons and daughters. So these three righteous men would be saved, but everyone else should expect the disastrous act of judgment to fall upon them. And the faith of the righteous will not save that of the unrighteous. And that's kind of a, a really a needed thing to, to be said is that, you know, just because you believe doesn't mean that those under your care or in your vicinity amongst your friends or family also believe. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be get some sort of special dispensation just because you're around believers. You know, each it's a personal thing in that God gives each of us uh, faith uh, in him. And, and those who do not believe uh, are, are going to have to stand on their own. Uh, so this presence of the righteous people on the land is not some sort of an insurance policy against God's anger. Uh, and in, nor is being in Jerusalem some sort of a lucky charm that will keep God's wrath away. 
uh, what happened is going to happen. And, and this means that the destruction of Jerusalem is inescapable and it's severe. The four disasters really symbolize this completeness that's coming from all, all four corners. And uh, this is going to be a complete and severe uh, destruction. So uh, since no one close, even close to the righteousness of Noah, Daniel and Job is in Jerusalem, how much more so will her destruction come then? So he's really painting a picture here of you don't have anything like Noah, Daniel and Job. And if even they were there, you'd still have the destruction. So you guys really are, are to face are going to face something severe here. Um, and really, there's no one like them at all. These three righteous men, Noah, Daniel and Job, to intercede against the Lord's anger. And, and even if there were, we know from Scripture that that would not necessarily have helped. And probably the best example of that would be when Abraham interceded with the Lord. And, you know, if there were 10 righteous and and for Sodom and Gomorrah and and lots there with his family and, you know, only he and his daughters end up getting out. Um, and so that reminds us of this, that even when the righteous do intercede, still the Lord's anger will come upon a, a nation or a city nation. Um, we see the same thing in Jeremiah in chapter 15. The Lord says that not even the intercession of Moses and Samuel would avert the judgment of God here. And that's really saying something because Moses and Samuel had interceded for God. Moses, for example, was on, you know, when, when the golden calf was, was formed, Moses interceded for the Lord and he turned against his anger, relented from his anger. And so he, he's using, you know, these, these men, Noah, Daniel and Job here in Ezekiel for a particular reason, just as Moses and Samuel were used for a particular reason in Jeremiah. Uh, so there, there's no doubt that the Lord will punish the guilty Jerusalem. That's what this section is about. There's no going back. There's no way that anything is going to happen to Jerusalem, but it is going to be punished. It's striking to see how that parallel from Jeremiah 15, where the Lord says, you know, not even Moses and Samuel praying for the people is going to, to stop this destruction from happening. It's, it's just striking to see how what Jeremiah is preaching in Jerusalem is parallel to what Ezekiel is preaching in Babylon. It's the, it's the same message through these two different prophets that's being proclaimed, even as they, they have different examples. So we, we talked a little bit about this with, when we studied Jeremiah 15 a couple months ago on, on Sharp Iron with Moses and Samuel. You have three different faithful men that the Lord mentions here in Ezekiel chapter 14. We've got Noah, Daniel, and Job. So why, well, just remind us, Pastor Preuss, of let's take each one in turn. Who, who are these three men? What, do, what are they known for? And, and why does Ezekiel bring them up particularly here? So let's start with Noah. So Noah is the man we know who was uh, righteous in the Lord's sight. He found grace in the, the, the eyes of the Lord uh, amongst the wicked, violent, uh, perverse generation uh, that was destroyed in the flood. And so Noah was saved through faith in, in the Lord when the whole world was destroyed by God's judgment in the flood. And uh, th this is then showing us that, that Noah is uh, really a, an example of the lone righteous one with his, his family, eight souls and all, uh, in the midst of an entire world uh, of, of evildoers. And so mentioning Noah is really saying something here that even if Noah's there still, I'm going to destroy, destroy all the rest of you. He's, he's saying it's going to be that kind of a destruction on Jerusalem, just like came upon the world in the flood. So it's a, 
it's a location there with Jerusalem and Judah uh, that's the difference. But bringing up Noah just reminds us of that great, great destruction uh, that came around a, a righteous man uh, who was saved through it all. The other thing that stands out to me about Noah in this context is that, as the Lord says several times here in Ezekiel 14, that these men alone would be delivered and not their sons or daughters. You know, on the ark there with Noah were his his family as well, yeah. his his wife, his sons, and their wives. And so, I mean, I think that really, you know, the flood was bad enough without the eight people being saved. And here the Lord says, well, not even Noah's family would be saved in this case. So that, I mean, I think that that really heightens what the Lord says here in Ezekiel 14. So, so there's Noah. Uh, what about Daniel? He's next. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Noah was this preacher of righteousness and so was Daniel. Um, what we know from Daniel, the, the most famous of the stories is him being saved from the lion's den uh, and how he was faithful in the midst of that. And he would continue to pray to the Lord and only to the Lord, uh, even if it meant that he would be uh, destroyed by lions. And uh, really, in the end, it was the idolatrous instigators who, who were eaten by by those lions. But you see the the judgment that, that was, was uh, meant to come upon him uh, and the judgment that really came upon the, all the idolatrous people. Uh, instead. So, so Daniel's another good example. He was, uh, you know, a contemporary uh, of, of Ezekiel, so well known in that, that time uh, to, to have some sort of a, a name like that thrown out there. Um, both Noah and Daniel are, are certainly examples then of that righteousness in the midst of judgment, and judgment certainly, certainly coming upon the evildoers. I mean, I think with Daniel being included here would have been striking to those who, who hear Ezekiel preach, because many of them potentially would have known Daniel and, and would have, I mean, you're like, they could, I don't, I don't, I don't want to surmise too much, but maybe could even go talk to Daniel and, and to think to themselves, this is not going to, you know, Daniel is right here with us and, and not even his presence here with us. I, I guess using a contemporary, it just strikes me. And again, I, I suppose I don't know that Daniel would have been right there for them to, to greet, but that's a very striking example to bring up one of his own contemporaries. They could have talked to, to him about what happened, you know, with the, the lions and everything that Daniel went through. And, and for him, not even, again, that, that really heightens what the, what the prophet Ezekiel is saying. Then he goes back in time to Job. So tell us about Job is the third one that, that he brings up. Yeah. So Job uh, was saved from the devil, even though, you know, everything else in his life was taken away. And so, uh, here we have uh, a very righteous man. Uh, you know, the devil came before the council of the Lord. You can imagine the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all the angels uh, around him. And, and the devil comes before and asking, asking to, uh, you know, you know, the only reason, the only reason that Job is is uh, not falling apart and following into or going into cursing you is because you protect him so much. And then, and then the Lord says, "Well, just don't take his life," is how it eventually goes. And and uh, he'll remain righteous and, and trusting in me. And, and so he does, you know, in spite of his sin, of course, we all know we have the sinful heart, but he was, he had faith in the Lord and was granted that from the Lord. And he was the, just the epitome of, of clinging to the Lord in the midst of suffering. Mm. And so here you have this righteous man. And if even he's not going to be, you know, his children aren't going to be, so you only have Job, Dan Noah, Daniel and Job are kind of three, great examples of people who i mean if if you're not going to save us because they're there well we're lost then there's no way anybody's going to be saved from this destruction 
is there is there a reason that we can figure out toward the ordering of these three men? Noah, Daniel, Job is not chronological. Is there is there perhaps a reason that we could discern for the why he lists them in that order? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously Noah comes first, and then we would have Job. Job would have been during you know the time of the patriarchs. Uh, and then you have Daniel, which is, you know, the time of Ezekiel. So uh, it's because the arrangement, more than likely, it has to do with the nature of their deliverance in the midst of judgment. So Noah was saved, uh, saved his family along with himself. Uh, no, Daniel was able to save his friends. Uh, but then you have Job with his righteousness was not even able to save his children. And so it's kind of a progression here of, you know, who you're able to save. And it's getting kind of worse and worse in the midst of judgment uh, and you're not able to save anything and so there's there there's a little bit of a progression there so even though the names aren't in order as far as chronologically in the order of you know thinking about how severe the judgment was and how many people you were they were a lot able to save uh, it really does kind of flow to wow now we got only job mm. by himself Referring or just thinking about the the things that the Lord mentions here in terms of this section as a whole again, it, it says, you know, their they would deliver their own lives by their righteousness. I think it we hear that word righteousness, and our minds, I think, often, or maybe mine does, and maybe it's not everybody else, but I think our minds often go to the way we live, that kind of righteousness. But yeah. I, I don't think that's the righteousness that Ezekiel has in mind. Can you help us to understand what, I mean, when we're talking about righteous and unrighteous, particularly in this context, what are we talking about? Right. So, I mean, we think of righteousness, uh, like you say, usually according to the law. Uh, we call that the opinio legis. It's, it's the opinion of the law. We we automatically go there as as sinful human beings where we we think that the way God God considers us to be righteous is, first of all, through our own actions rather than his action uh, which he has given to us in christ and so it is first and foremost a righteousness that comes through faith in christ who is our salvation jesus the, the lord saves and so uh, when we look at, at it that way we see that they are righteous through faith in the promise and noah was a preacher of that righteousness that the lord wanted to save uh, we hear that from from saint peter and, and this is a a very comforting thing for us uh, we also know that the same with, with Daniel. Daniel was was one who was righteous. Who he, the reason he prayed is because he trusted in the Lord who is his righteousness. Uh, and, and the same thing with Job. And so, I mean, Job is the one who says those beautiful Easter words. I know that my Redeemer lives, right? And, and the last day he's going to stand there in his own flesh and, and gaze upon uh, the, the Redeemer uh, of, his, of his body and soul. And so we need to look at righteousness first and foremost as God's, the, the Lord's salvation uh, for us and faith in that righteousness. And that's how you and I are righteous. We call that justification, right? We're declared righteous. We're reckoned righteous uh, through faith. And, and then uh, we are uh, from that faith, we live righteous lives, uh, not in the sense of, of being perfect. That's a, uh, not something that we're going to be able to accomplish in this life, but in the sense of uh, f fruits flowing from that faith. We who believe in Christ, he gives us the spirit uh, and, and we seek to walk the way uh, that is the way of the righteous, as we hear in the wisdom literature. So, so that's more the way we should look at it. We should look at it first, uh, righteous through faith, and second, righteous in, in our love for, for our neighbor. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that you, you said earlier. I think the, the way you said it was that the, 
the presence of righteous people in the land is not an insurance policy against God's anger. So, you know, the faith of the righteous is not going to save the unrighteous. And, well, I guess I just want to dig into that a little bit more, because it it strikes me as as something that's quite applicable in our own day as well. And I think it— and I think it, it hits people differently depending on whether they're the righteous or the unrighteous. And I think we both groups can fall into that sort of thinking, that the, the unrighteous think, well, I, I live in a—we're we're all basically good people, and so, so we're going to be okay. And, and then the righteous think that maybe the unrighteous, what's going on with them— it's not all that bad because, well, you know, we're all we're all sort of, and this is me just thinking about very, very modern way of speaking. You know, we're all Christians here in the United States of America, so things are going to be okay, right? I mean, it strikes me that that we still have this same sort of thinking within our in our own minds today. That it, hey, everything's going to be okay because there's there's some Christians around, and nothing bad's going to happen. And and all those unrighteous, it's not all that bad. They're you know they're okay people. I mean, all of those seem to, these are some of the thoughts that are flowing around in my mind as, as we're talking about this. And I'd, I'd like to hear more of yours on on this same topic and how we still see it today. Yeah, I'm reminded of Abraham, where we hear that he will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And there are times when I think we forget that, that the faith of Abraham, he will bless. And so the only way you have Christians is if you have those who actually believe the word of Christ and, and live by that word. And so in today's day and age, when you see the decrease of church attendance and you see people choosing all sorts of, of idols that they find to be more important than hearing God's word. And you see fatherhood uh, and motherhood not looked at as primarily a way to, to continue to give to posterity, to their own children, to posterity, the word of the Lord and to, you know, write it on their walls of their houses and, and when they rise up and when they go to bed and, and sitting in their houses and so forth, uh, we, we can't expect uh, the Lord to bless such, such behavior. And you can call yourself a Christian all you want. Uh, nominally, you might be able to get the label, but I think that people need to wake up right now. I think we're in an age right now in our own country where maybe that's kind of that idea is even fading right now or should be fading in people's minds. I think it's an overall negative right now in, in, in the vast majority of, of uh, Americans' minds to be a, a Christian who holds to a uh, literal interpretation of the Bible uh, and actually still believes in in Jesus as he uh, is the son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us and died for our very real sins against all sorts of things that people today celebrate. And so, yeah, it's uh, I, I hope that the the um, scales are falling from our eyes so that we're not blinded to to this. Uh, but it is very true. I, I don't know if I can say much more than that, that we 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 as the righteous through faith need to realize that we're not God, God will spare us certainly. Uh, and we need to, to believe that because that's, that's our comfort is that God will save us. Our, our judge, Jesus is coming to save us. Um, but that doesn't mean he's going to save our country. It doesn't mean he's going to save our particular congregation either, or even our synod. Um, I mean, th- there's all sorts of things that we need to consider when it comes to how God acts. It's, it's not, just 
he sees that there are, you know, a general amount of Christians out there and, uh, you know, everybody should just be happy about being an American Christian because God's always going to bless us. Well, you forsake his word and, and you've got that promise uh, that he said to Abraham, uh, bless those who bless you, your faith, uh, and I'll, I'll curse those who do not. I think that's a very helpful perspective, and particularly what you said about you know, that the righteous will be saved. I think that's that's an important thing that we should pick up for from this, is that Noah, Daniel, and Job, were they there, the Lord would save them because of their faith. And, and that, that, I think, is a message of comfort to the, to the righteous ones in the midst of, of the people who are hearing this. I suppose where, where I was thinking from that is I, there is, I think, a, a temptation among American Christians to think that, well, and, and I, I do think you're right, that this is fading, but, but I think, and maybe this is more true in some rural areas than, than more urban, but, you know, my neighbors, they're all basically Christians. They, they go to church, and, and so we're all going to be okay. When in reality, that, that may not actually be the case. Your neighbors may not go to church. And I guess uh, all this this section about, you know, that the righteous are going to be saved, but the faith that their faith isn't going to save anybody else, it lends an urgency to what we're talking about in verses 9 through 11 about being that faithful watchman and about the church proclaiming the full truth of God's word to know that it is only those who will who hear in faith this word of God that are saved there's there's an added urgency i think when you put those two together and i think sometimes that general notion that is fading that we're all sort of christians we lost that urgency and i think a text like this at least in my own mind helps to recover some of that urgency yeah and another thing to mention too is that even if you go to church i mean all these people in jerusalem were going to the temple weren't they but they were doing it yeah. for their idolatry and so what's actually being proclaimed in that church is a pure christ is it pure gospel? Is it right administration of the sacraments? Or are they just doing something that's what the false prophets were doing? Yeah, that's right. So so certainly a, a, an important word for our time still. The, the Lord concludes, having brought together these four disastrous judgments, you know, it sounds like, boy, even Noah and Daniel and Job, those are going to be the only ones that are going to live. But then he does bring up in verses 22 and 23 some survivors, and he mentions sons and daughters particularly. So perhaps, you know, I mean, think about Ezekiel's preaching to people already exiled in Babylon. Perhaps some of their sons and daughters were still in Jerusalem, and they're going to see them come into exile later. You know, Ezekiel's talked about a remnant before, and it's usually had a gospel theme to it. I'm not sure that that's quite the consolation that's being brought up here in verse 23 with these sons and daughters. This sounds more like in seeing these sons and daughters come, there's going to be a, well, not that same kind of gospel consolation, I guess. I don't, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem as clear to me here. What what do you see in verses 22 and 23? Yeah, there, you know, and there've been different takes on this, but I'll give you mine and, and then just talk about the alternative. But uh, what we do know is the Lord will save some from Jerusalem. Physically, they will be alive. Uh, but he's going to prove himself just by by its destruction. So these sons and daughters will be brought out of Jerusalem uh, as it's being destroyed. They'll escape their destruction by the Lord's grace, and they'll come to the exiles in Babylon uh, who are already there. And so you got exiles meeting the exiles who have you know been around for a while. Uh, however, the idolatrous conduct and actions of these sons and daughters, this is what it seems to, to be saying, that that their idolatrous conduct and actions will prove to the exiles who are already there that the disaster that the Lord brought upon Jerusalem was completely warranted and that he acted justly. 
Now, the other way that people will look at it is that the children are also righteous, uh, you know, and so they're brought out uh, and they will, together with the rest of the exiles, see that they had been guilty, um, but they'll be able to receive consolation that the Lord saved them and preserved a remnant. So that's the other take. I, I'm not really sold on that. I think it's more they're going to see that these people who have been saved, these sons and daughters who've been saved, th- their behavior God is completely warranted in what he's done. So that's that's the take I have from this. Either way, all of this is a stark reminder that God does discipline his children and he does punish in, uh, evildoers. And now both of those things, I think people will forget uh, that he will punish the evildoer, first of all, with death, uh, but ultimately with with the second death, that is hell. Um, and And then he also does discipline his children. Um, and we need that. Oftentimes we just talk about the law as an accusation and, and that's certainly needed, but God also does things in our lives to chastise us and brings about suffering in our lives to chastise us. Uh, Because without that, without those hardships in your life, without that suffering, you would not be led back to him. You would go and think that this world is all that there is and that there's nothing more to it. You have your eyes down here on this earth and would never look at the things in heaven uh, and where your true treasure is. Um, but with this chastisement, you, you then see hope and he puts you through that suffering. I mean, St. Paul ends up saying he rejoices in suffering because he knows that it produces endurance, produces character, produces hope. Uh, and and so this is kind of what's going on here is that there those who do believe and those who are the righteous through faith are receiving a chastisement, even as the evildoers are receiving punishment. And this should be comfort to us because scripture reminds us that while the Lord punishes the evil, he chastises those whom he loves like a father uh, upon his son. And so we're not illegitimate children uh, and neither were the Israelites. He's saying to them, you still have me. Um, my desire in all of this judgment is, is not just to destroy, 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 just like I saved Noah, just like I saved Daniel, just like I saved Job. I want to finally awaken you to faith in me. Uh, and he, he did that back then with, with a remnant. And uh, he certainly is doing that today with a remnant who still trusts in Christ amidst all suffering. Yeah, and Christ, Christ, the one who is the righteous one in whom there is salvation. Noah, Daniel, Job, their righteousness didn't save anyone else, but the righteousness of Christ that covers us, that does save us. Pastor Stephen Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa, helping us today with Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 23. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.